you have your Bibles, we're in Psalm 97 tonight. So uh, Psalm 97, the Messiah's coming reign is what I've titled the message here. Psalm 97 has no heading, but the early uh, Jewish tradition was that uh, David wrote it. They attributed it to David in the Septuagint and so forth. Uh, it is one of the Psalms that are often labeled as a royal psalm. It clearly intersects with messianic thought uh, because verse 7 is quoted by Hebrews 1.6 in the New Testament is referring to Jesus. Uh, as far as the outline of the chapter, uh, note there, uh, we have Messiah's coming reign, summons to rejoice in God's reign, and then uh, coming judgment of the wicked, God over all, and joy for the righteous. Well, to properly understand Psalm 97, we need to understand a little bit about what's called the prophetic perfect tense. You ever heard of that before? I mention it once in a while. It comes up on a regular basis. The prophetic perfect tense is a literary technique used in the Bible that describes future events that are so certain to happen that they are referred to as already fulfilled. Uh, Jews for Jesus says this, there is no such thing as tense in biblical Hebrew. Modern Hebrew, on the other hand, does have tenses. Biblical Hebrew is not a tense language. Unless, of course, you're learning it. I'm just kidding. Just kidding. <laughs> Be intense, that's right. And <laughs> it's tense. Uh, modern grammarians recognize that it is an aspectual language. This means that the same form of a verb can be translated as either past, present, or future, depending on the context and various grammatical cues. Well, that's quite interesting, isn't it? A little different than English, even Greek. Uh, special rules kind of apply to the, the Hebrew language. The Jews saw prophecy as given by God and therefore so certain to be fulfilled, that it was often spoken of as already fulfilled. Prophecy for them was not merely something that was future, but something already completed and fixed in the mind of God. Before God, it was as good as done, and so they spoke of it in those terms. The prophetic perfect in the Hebrew should not be confused, as I say, with the perfect tense of the Greek, which indicates completed action with continuing results, Rather, it is future action. Like I say, it could mean different things. But uh, when we talk about the prophetic perfect, it's future action that's considered uh, completed already. And we should note that most of Hebrew prophecy is given in a prophetic perfect form. So that's uh, significant. Okay. Get my props in order here. Uh, this is the case with Psalm 97 from the very first verse. We know that Psalm 97 verse 7 is quoted in Hebrews 1, 6 in reference to Christ in relation to his second coming. Therefore, we believe the whole surrounding context here in Psalm 97 is really ultimately talking about future things related to the second coming of Christ and the setting up of his kingdom. And it is so certain to come to pass that it is spoken of as already in place. So let's pick it up. Psalm 97, verse 1. The Lord reigns. 
Let the earth rejoice. Let the multitude of the isles be glad. The Lord reigns is the key emphasis in this whole entire psalm. And this is a big idea. It's already in place, although it is future. It's so certain to come to pass, it is spoken of as an already reality. This is ultimately a celebration of the Lord's reign at his second coming. The worship him in verse 7, as seen in Hebrews 1, 6, is applied to Jesus. And the hymn to be worshipped in this context is shown to be the Lord in the whole surrounding context. So when it says the Lord reigns, we're really talking about a statement of fact that ultimately applies in relationship to Jesus Christ and his future reign. Now, certainly God is sovereign always. Uh, His sovereign reign uh, is always in place. He's always on his throne in terms of his sovereign throne. But in terms of the throne of David, uh, where he will bring in the kingdom and reign over the earth, that is yet future. And that's what we believe is in view here in this particular psalm. Now, the Lord's reign uh, issues forth a summons for the earth to rejoice. Uh, the word earth uh, is the Hebrew word eretz. Eretz. Uh, it's the word the Jews commonly use for the land of Israel. And, and that's why I brought this, this really pretty large book. Uh, it's, a, it's a book on Israel, and it's called The 20th Century in Eretz, Israel. What in the world does that mean? Well, if you understand, for Jews, Eretz means land. Uh, 20th century in the land of Israel. Eretz. And, and that's a Hebrew word. And so they often use that word. If you, if you read Jewish writings, they'll often use Eretz. Uh, restoration back to the land. This is, the Jews and the land go together. The Jewish people and the Jewish land go together. So... Um, Moody Bible commentary here says the earth refers to the land, the people of Israel, while the islands, literally coastal regions, is a common synonym for the nations around the Mediterranean Sea, which serve as representative of all the Gentile nations. So verse 1, therefore, is really a summons to the land of Israel and to the whole earth to rejoice in God's reign. There's a call to celebrate. To celebrate the Lord's reign. Now when Christ comes to reign, it will be a time of tremendous celebration and rejoicing. David Gazik says, We could imagine an evil or dark deity whose reign would bring terror. We see such a limited sense uh, where men and devils are given room to exercise their wicked will. So, you know, boy, praise the Lord that God is a good God. And his reign is ultimately going to be a time of rejoicing. Uh, Satan is called the God of this age in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And you know what? It isn't pretty, right? It isn't pretty. But when Yahweh comes to reign, his reign will bring universal joy to the world. And the rest of the psalm then develops this theme and how it comes about. Verse 2. Clouds and darkness surround him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Clouds and darkness are indicative of the veiled awesomeness of God's judgment. The day of the Lord judgment uh, that will usher in the reign of the Lord is described in these terms. 
Uh, Note in Joel chapter 2 and verse 2. A day of darkness and gloominess. Of course, Joel, the whole theme of the book of Joel is the day of the Lord, ultimately looking forward to the the climactic day of judgment. Uh, A day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Like the morning clouds spread over the mountains, a people come, great and strong, the like of whom has never been, nor will there ever be any such after them, even for many successive generations. Zephaniah 1.15 That day is a day of wrath, a day of trouble and distress, a day of devastation and desolation, a day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and thick darkness. God rules by power, but the foundation, notice here, the foundation of his rule is righteousness and justice, which is indicative of his character. Now, so many today clamor for justice. But I think really very few really want God's justice. In fact, you know what I really want? Grace. <laughs> you say, I want, really what I, I want what I have coming. Well, prepare for hell. That's what we all deserve. Uh, we, want, we want grace. But God is a righteous God. And one day he is going to set everything straight. Uh, most of the time when people clamor for, quote, unquote, various things related to justice, they really got pretty much a a vindication uh, in view or reparations or whatever may be the case. Uh, The Lord in his reign will reign according to perfect standards. And he shows no partiality. Uh, It says in Genesis 18, you know, when we're talking about the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, uh, Abraham says, far be it from you. He says, if you find some righteous people there, what about them? And he's saying, far be it from you to do such a thing as destroy uh, the the righteous with the wicked, uh, to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous should be as the wicked. Far be it from you, shall not the judge of all the earth do right? And he will. He will. The answer is yes. The basis of his rule is righteousness. What is right and justice, correct judgment calls. A fire goes before him and burns up his enemies round about. Now, 2 Thessalonians 2.8 says Jesus comes in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God. Hebrews 12.29 says our God is a consuming fire. He comes in holy judgment, destroying his enemies. Now, fire in the Bible is very consistently associated with God's judicial wrath. Notice in this same context, his lightnings light the world. The earth sees and trembles. This is awesome stuff. This is apparently the Lord's public coming to rule the world. No one will say at that time, is this a sign of his coming? It will be obvious, gloriously obvious. It's what Christ talked about in Matthew 24, verse 30. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Out of the darkness of the tribulation period, suddenly a glorious light, like lightning, will light up the entire world with the glory of the Lord. The earth will see it and is personified here as trembling, as the whole world will shake and quiver at His presence. 
We read about this in Isaiah, prophetically, chapter 24. The earth is violently broken. The earth is split open. The earth is shaken exceedingly. The earth shall reel to and fro like a drunkard and shall totter like a hut. Its transgression shall be heavy upon it and it will fall and not rise again. Verse 5, the mountains melt like wax before the presence of the Lord, at the presence of the Lord of the whole earth. Now, mountains in the Bible are a picture of strength, but they are personified here as melting away like wax before his presence. No power can stand against him. He is the Lord of the whole earth. Micah chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, For behold, the Lord is coming out of his Place, he will come down and tread on the high places of the earth. The mountains will melt under him, figuratively speaking. And the valleys will split like wax before the fire, like waters poured down a, a steep place. By the way, note the parallelism here of uh, Lord in verse 5. Uh, the word Lord is used twice, all in caps the first time and the second time uh, not, in, not, not in caps except for the first letter. And uh, that first word is Yahweh in the Hebrew, and the second word is Adonai. Meaning, this verse indeed affirms Yahweh as the Lord, the great king, uh, master, who rules over all the earth. Verse 6, the heavens declare his righteousness, and all the peoples see his glory. When the Lord comes from heaven in power and glory, it will be a clear manifestation that he was right in all of his claims. I mean, the heavens declare he's righteous. He is right. None will be able to argue. All the peoples of the earth will see this overwhelming glory. In Isaiah chapter 40, we read, The glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Verse 7, let all be put to shame who serve carved images, who boast of idols. Worship him, all you gods. Now, when Jesus comes to rule, all the false idolatrous gods of the world will be clearly exposed for what they are. That is a total sham. And those who serve them will be put to shame. Notice that the one who is to be worshipped here is the Lord who reigns. The one who has fire going before him that destroys his enemies. The one whose brilliant light of glory illumines the world. And before whom the earth trembles. And before whose presence the mountains melt like wax. Now this is significant. Because in Hebrews chapter 1 verse 6. It attributes this worship as being designated to Jesus. You see the whole point of Hebrews chapter 1 is to emphasize that Jesus, as God, is greater than the angels. And he quotes here from Psalm 97, verse 7, to make his point. Now, if this ultimately has Jesus in view, which it does, Hebrews 1, 6, and in the surrounding context, he is called Lord, Yahweh, which he is, then it is clear that Jesus is, in fact, Yahweh, the Lord God Almighty, who comes to reign. And that is consistent with all further revelation given in the Bible. Now, it is interesting that Hebrews 1.6 quotes from the Septuagint, 
the Septuagint was an, was an early um, Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. And in quoting Psalm 97, verse 7, the writer of Hebrews doesn't go back to the Hebrew Bible. He quotes from the Septuagint. And in doing so, it says, let all the angels of God worship him instead of worship him, all you gods. So note uh, what we have here, uh, just by way of uh, comparing. Uh, Psalm 97, verse 7, uh, this represents the Hebrew. Uh, let all be put to shame who serve carved images, who boast of idols. Worship him, all you gods. Hebrews 1, 6. But when he again brings the firstborn into the world, I think ultimately in context, talking about the second coming, again, when he comes, he says, let all the angels of God worship him. Now, if the Holy Spirit wants to make this inspired application, who are we to argue? I'd say we're not here to argue. Uh, He can do whatever he wants to. He's God. If he wants to make this application, no problem. Uh, The word gods in Psalm 97 is the Hebrew word Elohim. Now, this word is general for God. And it basically means higher power or supreme being. And most often it is used in reference to God. And it's most often used in a superlative sense related to God himself. But sometimes this word is used in a lesser sense for angels, for rulers, for judges, or even for false gods. So in the lesser sense, these have a dignified role or supposed role of being in an exalted God-like position, although they are not God. For example, in Psalm 82, it says, God stands in the congregation of the mighty. He judges among gods. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Selah. What's in view here is God is calling the judges of the land to account. You see, the role of God is that of judge. He is the ultimate judge. But under God, there are those who have a God-like role of judge with a small j on the earth. And they are here called gods in the sense that they have a special, dignified, exalted, godlike role. But in truth, they are not God. Note at the end of the psalm, it makes this abundantly clear. We jump down to verse 6 and 7. I said, you are gods. And all of you are children of the Most High. But you shall die like men and fall like one of the princes. God is saying, although I called you by this dignified title because of your honored God-like role, before you get to thinking too high of yourselves as gods, just remember, you're really mere men, and you shall die like men. The point is, sometimes this term Elohim, higher power, is used in a secondary sense. And it is in this sense that under inspiration... The writer of Hebrews applied it to angels in Hebrews 1.6. Uh, 
although angels have an exalted position, a very dignified position, yet they are to worship the Son, who is in fact God over all. Well, let's now come back to the Hebrew in Psalm 97, verse 7. In the Old Testament, when one nation conquered another nation, the gods of the conquering country were considered to be the superior gods and were given credit for the victory. God's victory over the idolatrous nations of the world puts the worshipers of these false gods to shame. Indeed, he will be shown to be Lord over the whole earth, verse 5, and the Most High above all the earth, verse 9. NIV Study Bible, with biting irony, the psalm calls on the gods, poetically speaking, the people foolishly worship, to bow in worship before the Lord. The Lord who comes to reign alone is to be worshipped, as he is shown to be over all the gods, Hebrews 1 applies it to over all the angels. And of course, these gods are in fact no gods at all, as we have already noted in Psalm 96. Verse 8, Zion hears and is glad. Remember the context here? We're talking about the coming of the Lord to reign. And it's going to be a reality spoken of as being so certain it's already in place. Zion hears and is glad. And the daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgments, O Lord. When the Lord comes and destroys all his enemies, when he comes and puts away all idolatry, when he comes to reign supreme, Zion will then be glad. And Judah will rejoice because of his judgments. Now, Zion is the poetic name for Jerusalem, especially for the sacred part of the old city related to the Temple Mount in particular. And we read in Joel chapter 3, the Lord also will roar from Zion. We're talking about the second coming. This is the context here again. And utter his voice from Jerusalem. The heavens and the earth will shake, but the Lord will be a shelter for his people and the strength of the children of Israel. So you shall know that I am the Lord your God, dwelling in Zion, my holy mountain. Then Jerusalem shall be holy and no alien shall ever pass through her again. What a day of rejoicing that will be in Zion. Verse 9. For you, Lord, are most high above all the earth. Yeah, everybody will recognize it in this day. You are exalted far above all gods. The Lord alone will be exalted in that day. And he will be properly recognized for who he is as the most high above all the earth. Exalted far above all gods. In other words, all idolatry will be put down. In Isaiah chapter 2, the loftiness of man shall be bowed down, and the haughtiness of men shall be brought low. The Lord alone will be exalted in that day, but the idols he shall utterly abolish. They shall go into the holes of the rocks and into the caves of the earth from the terror of the Lord and the glory of his majesty when he arises to shake the earth mightily. Everything's going down. The haughtiness of people, all the false gods, it's all going down. And the Lord is going to be Lord over all the earth. Jesus Christ is coming as King of kings and Lord of lords. The wicked are going down. But what about God's people? Uh, What defines them? 
Well, the answer to this is found in verses 10 through 12. Verse 10. You who love the Lord hate evil. He preserves the souls of his saints. He delivers them out of the hand of the wicked. Now, those who love the Lord are those who know him. And they are exhorted to hate evil. Uh, There is to be no neutrality. You know, sometimes Christians act like love is just tolerant of everything and never takes a stand. And there's pressure to that end. Well, nothing could be further from the truth. You know, the Bible says in the last days, people won't endure sound doctrine. I mean, even professing Christians, they have a form of godliness, but they don't follow the Bible. To love God properly is to hate evil. You say, I love the Lord. Do you hate evil? I mean, if you really if you love the Lord, you, you can't be neutral. Say, well, I love the Lord, but I don't really take a stand on anything. But I love the Lord. No, you don't. No, you don't. You are not telling the truth. You see, the one demands the other. Now, to hate evil does not mean we hate the evildoers, right? Uh, we hate the sin, but we do love the sinner evangelistically. Nelson's study Bible, to hate means to reject, to love means to choose. Since both are an expression of the will and not merely an emotion, the Bible commands both love and hatred. As Christians, we are to be partial in a determined sort of way. We are to be biased towards the truth, meaning we side with favor for the truth. Biased towards loving God. Loving what he loves and hating what he hates. We throw in with God. Now, if one is not partial towards God, and somehow he, the world's pressure almost makes us, well, I don't want to be biased for God. Yeah, you do. Yeah, you do. Uh, you know, if someone is not partial towards God, I really wonder what side they're on. What side are you really on? I see these Christians who kind of seem to want to play Switzerland, Right? I'm Switzerland. I'm just neutral. I'm just neutral. You know, I love everybody. I love everything. I'm mellow yellow. Yeah, right. David Gazik says, it may be that this command is one of the most often broken among, among God's people. We find it easy to be too loving or rather express a twisted love that pretends to both love the Lord and love or accept the things that he hates. I like John Wesley at this point, who said, My ground is the Bible, yea, I am a Bible bigot. I follow it in all things, both great and small. Jesus tells us what he thinks about not taking a stand. It makes him sick, right? Revelation 3.16, So then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Makes him want to throw up. Now, our love for the Lord is shown in our hatred of evil. We are not passive. Say, well, it doesn't really bother me. I know you're just a a blasphemer over here, but it doesn't make me cringe. It doesn't bother me in the slightest. Do you really love the Lord? Love for God aligns with God. Loves what God loves and hates what God hates, starting with our own sin. A true love for God defines genuine believers. Notice what the Bible says as we go to the New Testament here, 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 3. 
But if anyone loves God, this one is known by him. And again, in 1 Corinthians 16, 22, if anyone does not love the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be accursed. And he says, Maranatha, O Lord, come. A love for God is demonstrated in a hatred of evil that sets God's people apart. Notice, these are saints. Uh, It is these saints, meaning set-apart ones, whose souls God preserves. Those who love the Lord are called saints, and God promises them His preservation, which is another way of saying His eternal security. Charles Spurgeon said, He may leave the bodies of His persecuted saints in the hand of the wicked, but not their souls. These are very dear to Him, and He preserves them safe in His bosom. Then he says, verse 11, Light is sown for the righteous and gladness for the upright in heart. What is the, uh, what is the possession of the righteous? Well, uh, light and gladness. Now, some translate, by the way, as sown here, as, uh, as dawns, uh, such as the Holman Christian Study Bible. Uh, that translation reads like this. Light dawns for the righteous, gladness for the upright in heart. You see, the wicked live in darkness, and they love evil. We love the Lord, and we're to hate evil. The wicked live in darkness, but light, light defines the children of God. Psalm 36, verse 9, For with you is the fountain of life, in your light we see light. And Jesus said, While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of the light. These things Jesus spoke and departed was hidden. Light relates to insight, uh, to seeing God's truth. The light has dawned on the children of God. 2 Corinthians 4, 6 says, God has shone in our hearts. The lights come on. And it says, the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. Where do we see it? In the face of Jesus Christ. This is our happy place. This brings gladness for the upright in heart. Warren Wearsby says, God's people are called righteous or the upright in heart, and these titles speak of a life devoted to God. Verse 12, Rejoice in the Lord, you righteous, and give thanks at the remembrance of His holy name. This psalm ends with an exhortation to the saints to rejoice and give thanks. After commanding us to be filled with the Spirit, Paul then immediately, in Ephesians 5, says in verse 19, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. That expresses joy. And then he says, giving thanks always for all things. The outflow of the Spirit-filled life is joy and thanksgiving. In 1 Thessalonians 5, Paul says, rejoice always. And then he says, in everything, give thanks. And in the middle, pray without ceasing. The secret of the Christian's joy is found in the Lord himself. You see, really what he gives us is a bonus. But our real joy is him. All that we are in him, all that we have in him, it's all about him. Note in verses 10 through 12 the designations that define God's people here. Verse 10, who love the Lord. Verse 10, his saints, the righteous, the upright in heart, you righteous. These are the ones the Lord preserves, who have the light, 
who are privileged to know the joy of the Lord. And then finally he says, give thanks at the remembrance of his holy name. We are to constantly recall that God is totally unique. Holy means unique, set apart. There is none other like him. Totally set apart from all the false gods of this world. He is the living God. He is the one true God. He is a God of righteousness, justice, the source of light and joy. The God who is coming to reign. Indeed, we have much to be thankful for as God's people. The psalm both begins, verse 1, and ends, verse 12, on a note of rejoicing. We can celebrate the anticipated coming of the Lord to reign. It is going to happen someday. We're not setting any dates, but we're certainly getting closer. And we can always be rejoicing because of the who the Lord is. We remember his holy name. So we celebrate the rule of God and we worship because of who he is. Indeed, let us ever be giving thanks at the remembrance of his holy name. Let's stand and have our closing song and then I'll close in prayer this evening.
Yes, he did a good job. You, you, you're pretty much saying a solo, but you did a great job. Appreciate it. Thank you. Yes, indeed. It was a good message. Lord, we do thank you for your greatness. And uh, Lord, we look forward to your coming kingdom. We are praying your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Indeed, the Lord reigns. Uh, it is a certain, prophetic, perfect reality. And uh, we look forward to that time when you are going to come. Uh, it's uh, The enemies are going to be put down, your enemies. Uh, and uh, yet, Lord, it's going to be a time of tremendous rejoicing for the saints, for your people, that you ultimately preserve for your kingdom. And so, Lord, in these dark days, help us to be encouraged. The kingdom is coming. Uh, yes, the way of the cross comes before the crown. And we're still in the time of the, of the cross as your followers, as we are exhorted to take up our cross and follow you. So, Lord, help us to keep in mind, though, what is coming, uh, the kingdom hope that is ours. Uh, the Lord reigns, indeed. And so, Lord, again, we thank you for your word tonight. Give us a fruitful week now for Jesus' sake, and we pray in his name. Amen.